Hello, my lovelies. Welcome to Did You Read the Book, a comparative podcast where movie buffs and bookworms come together to talk about stories and their adaptations that we love, hate, or love to hate. I am your host, Aaron Palmer, and today I am joined by Sam. Hi, Sam. Welcome. Hi. I have opinions. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> I will hear them. Good. <laughs> awesome. I'm so glad to have you on the show. Welcome. I'm so glad that a white man with opinions on anime has a platform to talk about it. <laughs> I know. It's really hard being a white man and not finding enough platforms. So yeah. I'm glad I could give this to you. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> awesome. Well, uh, today's topic uh, is kind of a whirlwind of things. So this is a very different format than what we normally do today. Um, we're not just talking about a book and a movie adaptation side by side. We're actually multi-layering. This is inceptioning it. Mm. Uh, it's going to be a manga, a movie, and an anime all kind of rolled into one versus a live action adaptation. So this is way different than normal. Um, so without further ado, Sam, what are we discussing today? Uh, today we are discussing Ghosts in the Shell. And the original source is a manga it was uh, written by Masamura Shiro in 1989. And then that was adapted into an anime movie by uh, director Mamoru Oshii in 1995. And then also we wanted to throw in, because it's kind of my favorite, the anime series that was the follow-up standalone complex in uh, 2002, directed by uh, Kenji Kamayama. Mm-hmm. Perfect. Yep. And uh, we're obviously... All three of those have such distinct flavors to them. Um, yeah. So we're going to be kind of hopping around <laughs> a lot. Ghost in the Shell is more of like a, a vibe than a, yeah, than absolutely. a actual like – it's not retelling the same story every time. Right. Especially with Standalone where it literally the title, you know, it's – they could all just be kind of isolated, quick snaps yeah. – in the life of, you know, the universe of Ghost in the Shell. Yeah. With a little bit of overarching stuff in there, obviously, but. Yeah. And then we'll be comparing that to. Uh... <laughs> yeah. So then we have on the flip side, the actual live action film, which is also called Ghost in the Shell, which is directed by Rupert Sanders, which came out in 2017. And it's featuring our very own Scar Joe. Mm -hmm. Scarlett Johansson, uh, along with many, many other people, but really the big pull is Miss Scarjo. And don't forget you're on Greyjoy. <laughs> oh, and you're on <laughs> I totally forgot. Yeah, he's a bato. Yep, he's uh, bato. Yep, yep. So <laughs> and uh, <laughs> don't type in new Ghost in the Shell movie or Ghost in the Shell the new movie because that's not that movie. That's a different movie. Oh, that's, that's right. Actually titled. <laughs> Ghost in the Shell, the new movie, the 2015. New movie. Oh, God, I forgot about that. We're not going there, but yep, yep absolutely. So obviously a lot of content to cover today. Yep. <laughs> um, so before we kind of dive into this, I wanted to give my quick little, you know, spoiler alert, lots of spoilers. We're going to be talking about this in depth. And obviously there's a lot of different material that we're bouncing around in. So if you don't want spoilers, go watch the millions of different things that are happening in Ghost in the Shell universe and then pop back in and we can deep dive together. Um, so before we get into it, Sam, I wanted to ask you, are you pro-source or pro-adaptation? Uh, I'm probably going to shock no one by saying I'm pro-source. Yeah. I was really <laughs> excited when I saw the trailer for the uh, live action version and mm -hmm. Uh, was just dreadingly disappointed the whole time I watched it. <laughs> I know, I know. Don't, and we'll definitely get into <laughs> why that is. 
Yeah. <laughs> All right. Cool. Well, let's talk about the originals. So we're talking about, you know, the manga, the movie, the anime, all animated. Yeah. Um, what are your kind of, well, actually first let's get into the synopsis. Sorry, I'm jumping okay. the gun. I'm so excited so, to talk about it. So tell me a quick synopsis about this. Well, so skipping over the manga, um, because the manga is kind of just a, a very dense, like it has lots of ideas and they're kind of scattered and things like that. And they were much more coalesced into the film. So the film uh, is, it basically follows the character of the major Motoko Kusanagi, along with uh, members of her team in section nine, as they try and track down this uh, hacker known as the puppet master. They're basically, they're a cyber crime division in the government. Mm -hmm. uh, this is in the year, the far off year of 2029. <laughs> I know. Isn't that wild? <laughs> yeah. And it takes up. place after the third or fourth world world war. I think the third at this point. <laughs> I think the third. Yeah, I think yeah. you're right. Wow. And uh, and so basically, uh, this investigation leads to them exposing uh, the things like secret government cover ups of uh, hidden like intelligence gathering programs, self reflection on the nature of sentient existence, and of course, sweet cyborg gunfights. <laughs> Obviously, why else would Sam be here? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all about that cyborg life yeah <laughs> awesome okay well let's let's talk shop what kinds of themes or things about the show and the anime like what's what's besides obviously the cyberpunk aspect what kind of draws you to this particular genre or these stories uh i mean so it's i've always been interested in like the works of isaac asimov and uh, anything kind of related to robots and things like that. As a little boy, I just liked robots. Yeah. But um, any story about robots, you got to start talking about sentience and freedom mm -hmm. and themes along that line. So really what stands out to me in Ghost in the Shell is like the imagery that they're able to meld with like Eastern concepts of um, like enlightenment and things like that. Uh, it leans heavily into things like the singularity, which is the concept of basically uh, moving towards like um, computers basically becoming self-aware, mm -hmm. kind of the removal of our tethering to our bodies. Um, yeah, the there's a line that stands out a lot in the original movie where Bato is uh, commenting on someone's uh, memories being hacked. And he just mm -hmm. says, it's all information, fantasy and memories. Yeah. Yeah. And that's something that Ghost in the Shell definitely discusses that, you know, at, at this point in time in, in the universe that's built, everybody has some sort of cyber, like cybergenetic tech. And it's a very common thing that everybody has access to. But, you know, with Motoko, it's and her team, since they work for the government, and they're basically like a specialized SWAT team. Yeah, um, they have access to like really high profile tech. Yeah. Um, and so it's really just, you know, a, a body is just a, a body. There's nothing special about it. You can kind of interchange and, and update and replace as you will. And it doesn't really matter because it's just tech. Really. Yeah. And uh, I believe <laughs> the original Japanese uh, name for the manga was actually like Mobile Armored Riot Police. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah and yeah. Uh, Ghost in the Shell really describes the a lot more. It's borrowed from the title Ghost in the Machine, and mm -hmm. uh, it it also is kind of that concept of um, 
of uh oh what is it the uh basically i've heard many versions of it but like you keep replacing parts on a car when does the car not be when does it stop being the original car oh that's the theseus ship yeah the theseus ship example yeah yeah exactly which is a huge theme especially in the um the first movie yeah um that was that was 2002 right it was when that came out uh the first movie was 1995 yeah Yeah. so when that movie yeah because that's like one of the main themes that montico deals with is you know they premise that she got a cyber genetic body very young Mm -hmm. and so she's always really had just an updated tech body most of her life yeah and so you know if you start just constantly replacing the pieces are you still you and that is a very very big theme for her character especially in that film she actually directly comments at one point that she's afraid that she might have died like 10 years ago and someone just put her brain in a body you know right right so she's she's grappling with does she even exist which is um you know the i think therefore i am philosophy Mm -hmm. and uh and then also uh, the I've heard it called the brain in a jar problem where, mm-hmm. you know, how do you know that you're not just a brain getting stimulus put into you, you know? Right. Like, right. Which is very obviously uh, a big inspiration for like the Matrix, yeah. which I know that the Ghost in the Shell was a huge inspiration for the yeah. Wachowskis. Yeah, I heard that the Wachowskis actually when they were pitching the Matrix, uh, they were showing people Ghost in the Shell and said, we want to do a live action version. I know. And then they said no, because like, no one's going to want to watch this or or fund you for this. So then they basically, the Matrix was like their love letter to the Ghost in the Shell because they weren't able to make it, which is so tragic because I think had they had the chance to actually make that film, it would have been amazing. Well, and they they still played homage in the visual language in a lot of ways. Like the the lobby scene from the Matrix is definitely Mm -hmm. related to the tank fight in Ghost in the Shell. Absolutely. Yeah, there's a lot of very much little homages and little thumbs up to Ghost in the Shell because you can tell they were fans. And it's really a shame they weren't able to to make the, a, a live action of that because it would have been pretty spectacular. Yeah. And uh, I mean, so definitely the philosophy um, kind of attracts me to the film. Uh, in the, the anime series, they're actually able to expand on individual characters and how they have their own personal philosophies. Mm-hmm. And uh, what I really like is kind of how everyone just lives in this like futuristic world where all this crazy stuff is happening and they're able to just like parse how they are going to uh, engage with it. You know, like mm-hmm. the major is pretty much, you know, the most bold out of all of them. She is to the point where she's doubting if she even needs a body, you know? Right. Right. She could just be in the cyber world, essentially, yeah. which is a lot of what they discuss, actually, in the second movie, which we're not really going to yeah, talk Michelle, about today. Yeah, Ghost Innocence. Yeah, Innocence, yeah. And that's kind of being in the ether, which is very similar to the Puppet Master, which is a similar kind of theme where, you know, he is everyone and no one because he can just bounce around wherever he so chooses into whatever body he can hack into. Yeah. And this concept is not as novel to us anymore because we are currently recording onto a cloud and (laughs) things like that. Like all these concepts have become very familiar to everyone that, that understands that like we can just transfer data across, uh, you know, the airwaves and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. In uh, yeah. 1989, when the Mongos made, and then 1995, that was a much heavier concept. And it's really interesting to see that people interacting with the early internet were already going, 
okay, maybe we can download our brains and like go into a different yeah. body. Yeah, which is pretty incredible to think, you know, 1989, the internet was so young then and so clunky that, you know, mm-hmm. these kinds of concepts, it was pretty mind blowing. And you're right now it's like, well, yeah, why wouldn't you be able to do that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, the movie sometimes gets a little bit like a lecture in philosophy. Like there's a lot of monologues and things like yes. that. Um, I think the the anime series does a better job of showing and not telling as much. It still does yeah. a lot of monologues and telling, but <laughs> you yeah. kind of you kind of got to be ready for the monologues if you're going to watch them. Yeah, this source. is a very talk heavy show and source material. That's why they got to sprinkle in the the violence and and you know sexual imagery every once in a while. Oh, yeah, got to keep it spicy. <laughs> I mean, if you want if you want to justify it, you can talk about how well that's their human form and you know all that stuff, but it's yeah. it's serving a few options. Um, oh yeah. Yeah, you got to pull in people another way. <laughs> I think the anime series also benefits from um, they do the addition of the Tachikomas. Uh The Tachikomas are the little robot tanks that are oh, childlike. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, those like cute little chibi. Yeah, machines. so they're uh, Ghost in the Shell has a a great mechanical design aesthetic. It's actually I think the second credit on the show is the mechanical designer for the show. Yeah, and so the Tachikomas are these spider tanks, which is a thing in Ghost in the Shell. That like for some reason tanks roll around on wheels, but are also spiders. Because <laughs> why not? Because <laughs> why not? <laughs> also, quick aside, oh, uh, yeah. something that's really stupid about Ghost in the Shell that I love. <laughs> they have androids that are basically just cyber bodies without humans in them, and Section Nine uses them as like clerical people and sec and uh, secretaries, and also sex bots. Yeah, and so yeah. they are. <laughs> yeah. So they're having them do their work. And one of the coolest scenes in both the movies and the series is when they need to really work hard and they split their hands open and suddenly start typing with like 20 million, like yeah, mini fingers, right? Little like millipede centipede finger yep. things. Yeah. But intense. you're having a robot, an Android walk up to a computer I know. and type, <laughs> type on it. <laughs> As opposed to just plug, <laughs> plug into it, it in, which they demonstrate in the show that everyone can plug into everything. <laughs> oh, I know. And they're just talking over like the cyber waves, essentially, where they don't even have to like talk. Yeah, exactly. They have wireless communication. There's so many ways to not analog type. And <laughs> they make a robot walk up an analog type on a computer. It's like, it this is looks, absurd. I love this. <laughs> but it looks so cool. It's Sam. so cool. And that's, again, that's the vibe <laughs> of Ghost in the Shell is a robot walks up to a computer and pops out 20 fingers and types. <laughs> well, that's job security, if yeah. nothing else, right? It's not that's hackable. Hilarious. That's what it is. It's non-hackable. Maybe. There typing. you go. Except that the body is hackable. The body is hackable. The keyboard's <laughs> hackable. There's key logging. There's all these ways that it can be really but bad. But it's not hackable. It's not hackable. <laughs> <laughs> that's not an in-canon reason. I was just making yeah, stuff yeah. But that's kind of the thing about it is like there's just some – it's like when you watch um, Alien and they, they purposely mm-hmm. now with the newer movies have to still make the computers seem like they're from the 1970s. Right. You know, right. <laughs> it's kind of the instant problem of cyberpunk is like cyberpunk is very much like a uh, late 80s, early 90s sort of feel. And mm-hmm. uh, now they're like, hey, we're actually hitting the dates that we talked about in the 80s. I know, and right? everyone just has iPhones and I no know. one has these giant clicky computers. <laughs> well, it's like Blade Runner. I just rewatched that the other day. It, it sets in 2019. Yeah. And it just blew my mind. I was like, oh, my God, we've yep. already passed it. <laughs> mm-hmm. You're a replicant. It's Yeah, I am. Yeah. Who knew? 
yeah. Uh, yeah, it's pretty wild. And also like Blade Runner is also, you know, same kind of genre. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you look at a lot of the kind of design and you're right. It is very like 80s design, but set in a futuristic setting. And that's a very similar vibe again with Ghost in the Shell where yeah. it looks like outdated, updated kind of feel. To I, it. I would call Blade Runner a, a cousin to Ghost in the Shell yeah. because they yeah. are based off of similar source works. Blade Runner came first and so actually probably influenced the visual aesthetic of Ghost in the Shell. Oh, interesting. Um, I didn't know that. But yeah, Blade Runner, I think, takes place in L.A. And they deliberately in the 1995 movie decided to base the location on Hong Kong of the time period. The You know, the. Yeah, for Ghost in a Shell. Yeah. yeah. And Hong yeah. Kong back then um had kind of this grungy aesthetic to it. And they well, kind of like neon signs and like. New buildings and old buildings. Yeah, neon signs with like a pile of trash, you know. Yeah, yeah. And they they definitely have a vibe of like Tokyo and Hong Kong, but very strong vibes of of Hong Kong for yeah. sure. Yeah. And that and then actually that brought something up that I wanted to talk about for the film that I thought was so amazing is so the with animated films, you know, at that time they didn't have like location scouts or, you know, colorists that would actually like think of panels beforehand. It was just not nearly as complex as like an actual film. And so they actually had location scouts for that first film, which is just wild to me that Mm -hmm. they were doing that when no one else was. And so the, I cannot remember the guy's name who went to Hong Kong to do like photography for the just kind of inspiration and, he would take photos in color and black and white to kind of get the different textures and depths. Yeah. And then he would also like a lot of the kind of evening scapes that you see in the film where it looks like there's like dew kind of around the edges and it kind of looks, it makes it look fuzzy and dewy. He actually took photos where he would go into like a coffee shop where it's air conditioned and then come back out and it would fog his camera. Hmm. And then he'd take photos of screens, like of just landscapes in the city just so that he could get that effect that they could then draw. I mean, it was so yeah. intricate and incredible, and I've never heard of anything like it. And it was never done before that, which yeah. is pretty wild. And I also heard that they basically um, they had, and this is very common with uh, animated films nowadays, but they had uh, basically the animators go out to a gun range and play with guns and understand how they work and things like that. And then they had a specialist that shot a bunch of rounds off into different media to see how the impacts look so they could more accurately animate all those impacts. Right. Because they use a lot of, you know, heavy military machinery. And, you know, there's a scene that I thought of in particular, again, from the film where it's um that, you know, that the iconic water scene where they're fighting in the water. And it's the um, the guy who is they're chasing yeah the ghost hack this, guys. yeah the ghost hack guy he before they get to that water scene he pulls out this gun and like does this crazy wide stance and starts shooting at them and it's like slowly pushing him backwards because it's like tank yeah. piercing rounds yeah they're they're commenting on it yeah. yeah it's incredible and they actually like draw that in of him having to take this really wide stance just so that he doesn't get blown over from the kickback. <laughs> and there and the animation and stuff like that, you're basically able to tell, oh, he's a full cyborg because he's right. You know, he's able to take the recoil and then when they're jumping, both him and the major, when they jump from roof to roof, they land heavier than you would expect. You know. Right. And you can see actual like metal panels and stuff like cave when yeah. they land because they are 
you know, titanium or whatever, they're, yeah, they're, whatever metal they're made of. You know, Major might look like a 110-pound woman, but she's probably actually 300 pounds. Like, right, just because of tech. Exactly. Yeah. So. And it's, yeah, and the attention to detail that yeah. they do in all three formats, in the manga, in the movie, in the anime, it's so beautifully done. There's so many things about it that we can see inspired a lot of different anime a lot of different cyborg like cyborg stuff cyborg (laughs) cyborg whatever that means well it's a it's a fully cybernetic uh, iceberg actually (laughs) how we're going to deal with global warming yes (laughs) (laughs) yeah so i mean it's there's so many things about this content that you see inspire other things and it is pretty amazing that most people don't realize that you know this is kind of one of the origins of truly cyberpunk concepts well its story is revolutionary and then also the animation techniques have been carried forward into uh, a lot of animation properties there's a lot of people that claim ghost in the shell is one of their influences Mm-hmm. I don't. I'm not surprised by that because there's so much to pull from. Yeah. Um. And it's it's beautifully textured. It's beautifully layered. The stories are intricate. There's a whole. I mean, they they build entire political spheres around it. Like we were talking about, there's a ton of monologuing. So they build this yeah. incredibly rich universe around. Yeah. And I, you know, especially in standalone. Yeah. The the movie is kind of more dour. Um. And doesn't really have a kind of humorous edge to it for the most part standalone mm-hmm. complex they make jokes they uh they seem yeah to, it's much more light yeah they seem to actually be like you know i go home and drink a beer sort of cops you know yeah they seem to be a lot more of a close i, I don't know if it's a close-knit team but they seem to be more colloquial with each other than in the film the yeah. film motoko seems very intentionally isolated because she's just you know grappling with who she is and what she is. Yeah. And it's a much more poignant film than I think that the show is. Yes. Well, and the manga Motoko is basically kind of a party girl. She's uh Yeah, it's like very Ranma yeah, yeah. feel to it. Yeah. She's yeah, it's a very different vibe. She drinks beer, she uh she fights with people at the bar, she brings a guy home, she'll bring a girl home. Uh yeah. you know. So Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And that's yep. something too that, you know, the whole bisexual uh, appointment of her character is very interesting because again, the manga was written and started getting written in 1989. Yeah. So again, very edgy, especially for Japanese culture. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think um, definitely a reading you could do. I don't think we're qualified to really comment too much, but there's definitely a body dysmorphia angle of like the trans community probably sees a lot of themselves in this film and anime series. Yeah, you know, I don't know much about that, so I wouldn't be able to comment. <laughs> yeah, I don't know much more than that. I'm just speculating, so. Yeah. But, you know, the idea of you're not in the correct body, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and also, I mean, having the easy access to switch bodies. Yes. So you don't need to be in a female assigned body if you don't feel that way. You can be in whatever body you want. Yeah, I think in the movie, but especially in standalone complex, they comment multiple times that why do you stick to the uh, the female model? Why don't you upgrade to the male model so you get the strength? Mm-hmm. And she very astutely points out that she's you know the best hacker in the world, basically. So as long as she can hack her opponent, you know she doesn't need the the burly body. She uh, right. she hacks Bato's fists and makes him punch himself. So. Right. 
Right. And also that's that's what I kind of love about the Major's character is that she looks really petite and very tiny and frail, but she is anything but that. Her character is incredibly strong and she is the most cyborg out of her entire team where she's like, what, 90% or something. I mean, pretty much I all mean, cyborg. They mention brain cells sometimes in certain versions of Ghost in the Shell, but as far as I can tell, she's completely cyberized. I mean... She sur- she survives things by like uploading her conscious to servers. Right. And actually, know? I think you're right, because in the very beginning, again, with the film, that opener where they see her being built. Yeah. You know, there's there's no I mean, there's some organic tissue around the mechanics. Yeah. But overall, I mean, 98 percent of it is all tech wear. Yeah. Including her brain. I mean, it's kind of hard to talk about Ghost in the Shell because it's like, all right, so let's talk about the philosophy. And you're like, but there's also that really sweet moment where they hack someone's eyes during a gunfight so they can get the advantage on them. Right, <laughs> you know? right. So there's just, there's a lot of like elements to it. Um, there's uh, some really just amazing action scenes mm-hmm. that yeah. uh, like in particular in no order, I'm just thinking like, um, in the movie, obviously we talk about the water fight, but that whole sequence with the, uh, the garbage man, yep. uh, and then he's going to meet his guy and then, uh, they, they fight in the water invisibly. They're using thermoptic camouflage, you know, a very cool mm-hmm. cyberpunk idea of like, yeah, you just put on this jacket and suddenly you're kind of invisible. Right. And I love that they give it not an iridescent sheen, but you can definitely see like it looks like things are kind of reflecting off of it as they're moving. Yeah. It's kind of like the movie Predator. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. It's a very cool effect. And that's that water scene is probably one of my favorite scenes just because when he gets into that wherever he is in that water area, this huge cityscape. Mm. that they have this backdrop on and it's it's just gorgeous and the reflecting off the water and then you know you see her like kind of her thermo camo is kind of glitching a little bit but then you see her shadow on the water and she's not there i mean there's such mm-hmm. an amazing style to that particular scene it is absolutely gorgeous yeah I, but it's one of my favorite scenes yeah standalone complex they'll have like um they'll have a big gunfight that will just i i mean one of the funnier things about ghost in the shell to me is like the It'll be a normal conversation and all of a sudden some crazy cyborg guy flips his arm out and it's like a gun and then just mm-hmm. a weird mm-hmm. gunfight happens. Like, yep. Just like know. in the middle of it all. Yeah. Yeah. Just shit hits the fan all the time. <laughs> but that's kind of the, you know, the whole purpose of her team yeah. and, hun- and Hunka is that, uh, you know, they, they kind of deal with the stranger or more high profile issues in the city. Yeah, so they're they're part of this group known as Section Nine, which is now the government has these like uh, law enforcement sections. In the original movie, they mentioned Section Six, which is kind of a foreign affairs section, mm-hmm. and uh, that's another big theme of um, Ghost in the Shell is like government corruption, fighting, uh, infighting in a government, and kind of it when you kind of map when ghost in the shell properties come out you can look at like internal japanese politics and you're like oh the director was kind of upset about japan's policy towards the iraq war right now <laughs> you know like mm-hmm. they they very much they don't try and like make them evergreen they definitely pick issues that they are feeling strong about right now and then kind of write a ghost in the shell story about it yeah yeah it definitely reflects um current affairs and just the actual like political standing of japan because it is produced by 
Japanese yeah. people, so they are. <laughs> yeah, they would know. <laughs> and the other thing to mention is both um, the the movie and the anime have terrific music. Oh, so good. Yep, I know. Yeah, it the, is incredible. The iconic movie soundtrack is this. Um, they took Japanese singers and had them acquire singers and had them sing in, I believe, a Polish style. That this weird trilling yeah. sort of vocals and uh the the song is called uh birth of a cyborg yeah and so i actually looked into that a little bit further it sounds like it is called birth of a cyborg and then they also based the lyrics on a traditional japanese wedding chant yeah (laughs) which is such a weird there's so many elements to that and i don't even know how to unpack that but it it's very fascinating and it sounds so cool. It's very iconic. I mean, it just, it captures the tone. It's like, mm-hmm. because it's the melding of cultures and tradition and future and like, it's just supposed to be eerie, you know? It is. Like, it is very You're like, cool. is this good? Is this bad? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, and then you look at the standalone, the opener is in Russian. Yeah, it's a Russian artist. Yeah, which is again, complete 180 of what you know the vibe from the film is so it Mm -hmm. it is it bounces a lot in different cultures and it's pretty great i do do love it and if you like the the music from the the show it's actually the same um the same composer as cowboy bebop yes which is also a great show gold just gold i know such a great uh music is wonderful um i did want to ask you like Specifically about the character, the major. Yes. What is your kind of overall impression of her? What do you think of her character? Like, what do you like? What do you dislike? Just what what do you like about her? She kind of varies based on what property you're watching. So if you're watching the original film, she is clearly kind of grappling with her own existence. Um, mm-hmm. She is getting to the point where she's doubting if she's even real, basically. Mm-hmm. But she's also kind of trying to push at the boundaries, you know. Um, I don't know if we want to get into the ending of the film at all, but yeah, yeah, we'll yeah. Cover so whatever you want. <laughs> essentially, she, you know, eventually they meet the puppet master, who it turns out mm-hmm. to be um, coming from the other direction. It's a program that has become sentient, right? And so it's the singularity. Essentially, they've met the singularity, and. Mm-hmm. Uh, she has been commenting in scenes before when she was doing her diving scene, how she was feeling less and less connected to being alive mm-hmm. and he is seeking to be alive as well. And, and, or they, I guess, as uh, he is kind of a strong word for <laughs> a sentient program. Yeah. There's not really any specific gender assignment. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a female bot that is speaking in a deep man's voice. So also we kind of buried the lead here. Lots of nudity. <laughs> <laughs> so much nudity. So many boobs. I know. It's yeah. Yeah. Yep, but, um, but yeah, anyway, so these two naked ladies are talking to each other. And <laughs> <laughs> she's got body armor on. It's just skin uh, tight, so it looks not like not by the end of the film. <laughs> oh, that's true. Yeah, yeah. that's true. She had to strip that off to fight a tank for some reason. Because <laughs> it's really important not to have that skin tight. To be invisible, she has to be naked, even though other people go invisible without being naked. <laughs> Well, no, because the skin tight suit is her thermo camo. Yeah, but the dude in the jacket goes thermo camo, and he's don't in a... question the science, Sam. <laughs> it's better if she's naked. <laughs> so, anyways, we got sidetracked by nudity, but <laughs> but um, so she meets the singularity essentially, and you can kind of tell in dialogue that she's been talking about how she feels limited by things like her body 
She's worried that her memories aren't her own. That's a big part of the film is that people can be hacked to have false memories. Right. And so she's not even sure that she's authentic anymore, essentially, is, you know, like, am I me? And Puppet Master basically offers her a, a different out, which is like, hey, I can't reproduce or die, you know, and I mm-hmm. want to do that to be alive. Mm-hmm. Do you want to merge with me and create something new, i.e. reproducing? Right. And then I can die and I will be alive. And he makes points about like duplicates and copies basically are not a sound way to go if you want to survive as as like an evolution strategy. And uh, this is mirrored by the visuals of the scene with the tank shooting the symbolism. Right. <laughs> but um, essentially the idea of like a single computer virus can wipe out a program. So if you want to evolve a program versus duplicate a program, then you have to basically couple two things together and create something wholly new. Right. Which, again, is a very humanistic thought process because if you think about you know actual like human procreation it is better to not be procreating with your own bloodline because yeah. it causes deformities and it can cause a lot of health issues later and it will kill the line faster so mm-hmm. having that diversity in procreating is actually vital for survival which is pretty much identical to this concept but on a tech level yeah as opposed to an actual human level which is Again, so intricate. So yeah, so the, cool. the the program, the Puppet Master, is recognizing the utility of basically evolution. Mm-hmm. And now that it has gained sentience and it wants to continue sentience, it's recognizing that I need to, you know, it's coming from the other direction. Major is moving away from humanity and becoming less and less of what people usually perceive as humanity. Like Bato in the film is always trying to kind of pull her back. He's like covering her up when she's needlessly naked, you know, right? Um, she's kind of treating her body as just an object. Right. Cause she's had, you know, she's had cyber genetics her whole life. So that disconnect, I can see why she would start to grapple. Cause it's like, well, I haven't felt human in a very long time. So what's the point? What's the point of acting human and being human if that's not how I identify anymore? And there's even a, uh, in that kind of slowdown scene in the in the film where they take a break to just show you the, the city and how Major's feeling. She sees a person in her model of body. So she sees a duplicate of herself, essentially, but she's wearing like a cocktail dress and in is a, in a, in a bar. cafe. Yeah. Yeah. Or a bar or something. Yeah. Which is, it's an interesting scene because... You know, the assumption is, yes, it's just another model of her, but that at the same time, it I I kind of interpreted that scene as she is having almost like not an out of body experience, but also like projecting herself into another body or into another person, just that almost like a break of reality. Like, am I here or am I there? Am I nowhere? Like, there's kind of extra layers to that scene. It could be false memories. Yeah, exactly. And that's the thing is that's a huge topic. It's like, okay, well, up until this point, I thought I was me because of my memories. But now we're seeing that even memories can be corrupted and changed and rewritten. So if my memories aren't even safe, then am I me? And 
that is a huge theme, especially in the film. Oh, and it's a very relevant topic to us nowadays because uh, we are moving closer and closer to like, you can doctor photos, you can doctor video right. with Face deep fake. And stuff. Yep. So can you truly authentically, you know, like I, I've heard that modeling agencies are pretty much the only people in the world still using original Polaroid cameras. And it's because they want to take a picture of a model that can't be altered and then use that as the headshot. You know, it's wild, right? Yeah. So there's this this question of authenticity in a digital world. Mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah. And, ag- and again, we we go back to that. You know, what is reality? Question again is literally the premise of the Matrix. <laughs> yes, wait, and <laughs> so, I think are we in reality or not? Like that's that's literally what the whole movie's about. And clearly, that resonated. That theme resonated with the Wachowskis not only in the Matrix but also in their personal lives because they transitioned and things like right. that. You know, right. Exactly. So, and obviously, like, um, I know it wasn't very well received, but I liked it of uh, uh, Cloud Atlas and uh, the theme of different bodies and reincarnation and things like that. Yeah, it didn't receive very well, but it was interesting. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't say it was an amazing movie, but yeah. it definitely was an interesting concept for sure. Yeah. And so uh, that's kind of the major in the Ghost in the Shell film. In the standalone complex, they more draw her back towards the manga roots, which is kind of the fun, coy, you know, commander. She's uh, part of the team. and uh, Very edgy. Yeah, she's still probably not as uh, friendly as she is in the manga. She's still kind of stern. She disciplines the Tachikomas, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but uh, a very interesting line that she says is when they're – basically they're getting attacked by the rest of the government because they are being uh, thrown under the bus – and they're escaping and they're going to their safe houses and stuff. And one of the things she says to Bato is, if you're really concerned, you could just delete all your memories, basically. And oh, so right. in that sense, yeah. she is fully confident uh, compared to the movie version. She is willing to go that far. She doesn't. And she might just be daring Bato, you know, kind of like, I'm concerned about this, but I don't want to show it. And Bato, again, is trying to draw her back into humanity he's focusing she has a keepsake that she keeps that is um this thin small watch that fits on her wrist and he's commenting you don't change bodies because then this wristwatch wouldn't fit anymore you know (laughs) yeah and it's because it's the wristwatch that she received from the doctor that did her initial cyberization when she was young so there's still obviously sentiment there she still has yeah some human characteristics that she is holding on to but she's definitely you know, on the verge of kind of cutting everything and yeah. just being, you know. She's kind of challenging Bato, like saying like, well, you could just burn it all down and then you would survive, you know. Right, right. Because there's nothing to stop you from just, you know, starting over essentially because yeah. of the tech they have available. Yeah, it, you know, it's kind of reminds me of um, <laughs> there is this time period in history before we had like identification cards and things like that, where you could just move to a new town, say you're a new person, and that's it. <laughs> like, there's no paper trail. There's yeah. no nothing. You just start over. And yep. so in a sense, like in a weird way, we're circling back to that a little bit where um, you can kind of do that digitally. You can kind of burn down everything that you have online if you can track it all down and then just become a new person digitally. Yeah, which would be pretty hard to do now just because of how digital everything is and how many different ways that you would have to go about wiping yourself. I mean, if you've got the skills, you could do it, but it would be very difficult. Well, and uh, the Motoko in the show is very, very competent. She's probably one of the best hackers in the world. And 
she definitely has those skills and that's um, kind of why she's doing the job that she's doing, which is taking down cyber criminals and that the show for focuses much more on like kind of a police procedural. There's certain episodes that are standalone and then there are other episodes that are main plot line episodes. So, right. Yeah. Right. It's just, oh, there's so many things yeah. about the show that are so intricate and so beautiful. And I feel like I just keep saying that over and over, but. And we're kind of <laughs> delaying the inevitable. I know. I was just going to ask, do you have any final thoughts before we move into the, uh, so, the, the live action? So film? something that uh, my, my friend Dan has talked about that I always enjoy about Ghost in the Shell is that basically like you like the main characters of Ghost in the Shell because you spend the most time with them, but they really are like horrible, murderous government thugs. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like yeah, there's really totally. not that great morality to stand on like they clearly sometimes go after people that are just good people <laughs> like, oh yeah they're like yeah and for sure they like cover up their own crimes sometimes <laughs> yeah it's a very typical corrupt system that yeah. has really good tech to cover up things yep yeah it's so, uh, not perfect by any means <laughs> and generally they care about the truth, but they don't care how they get there. <laughs> so. right. right. Which is, you know, really quickly, I wanted to touch on that because that is a, another thing that comes up a lot is like, you know, we have these capabilities to do all of these different things with our cyber genetics. And like, you know, you can hack into people's eye and you can mm -hmm. basically like implant cameras into people and things like that. It's like, which, yes, you can do that, but should you? Yeah. Like the ethical lines are very very wibbly wobbly in especially standalone well and you can see how a simple justification of like oh we want to use this to spy on like drug dealers and things like that mm -hmm. and how it then gets in the show used on the police themselves exactly and then the way that section nine finds out about it is basically an uh, old cop friend of uh, one of the other characters, Togusa, who's really the family yeah. man, good guy cop. He's, he's one of the few who doesn't actually have any cyber genetic enhancements. He's like he has the a most cyber, human on the He team. has like a basic cyber brain so he can plug into stuff and that's about it. So he pulls on the thread of like a weird uh, envelope that's sent to him and then that guy gets killed. And the way he gets killed is really cool in cyberpunk. Literally, he's driving down the road and they use the cameras in his eyes that he doesn't know are there to basically like use a flash bulb. Yeah. And it just like blinds him at night and he drives off the road and dies. Yeah. And that that spurs on the murder investigation then, you know, the cover up is actually the footprint. It is pretty incredible because it's like, oh, well, we put those cameras there originally because we thought there was like internal like corruption going on, but then they started using it to spy on all of their people. And they also didn't tell them mm -hmm. that they put them in there. They said, Oh, it's just, it's a, just a regular physical and they implanted cameras into their eyes. So the fact that they're able to not only implant little baby cameras into people's eyes, but do it without their knowledge. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty incredible tech, but then it's, you know, that, that very wibbly wobbly line we're back to of like, well, you can do it, but should you be doing that? And also that? while it's a scandal in the show, they don't stop doing it. <laughs> no, no. It's a very apparently common practice thing. Like 10 episodes later, they're still talking about like, oh yeah, they still have those cameras. Oh, in yeah, there. That's, that's the thing still. yeah. So it's, it's very interesting that the kind of logic around what their cyber genetics can do it it's the show doesn't really address like oh this is wrong because it's not ethical they're like well this is what is happening we're going to deal with this situation and then never resolve it yeah. like it's just 
it's a very interesting yeah. method of addressing ethical issues yes. without actually addressing them. <laughs> no, they don't address them unless they absolutely need to. But most right. of the time, they just kind of stand there and look stoic and then move like, on. Oh, that happened. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> yeah. And then other than I just feel like it's like there's probably something we're missing. You know, in terms yeah. of like what to talk about with Ghost in the Shell, you're like, we've talked about the weird Tachikomas that are basically children that are robots that are slowly becoming sentient under their noses. Yep. Uh, there's um, the crazy, just like cyber body stuff. There's uh, the hacking is kind of cool that it's like this floating world that she flies through and things like that. I mean, there's, there's so much to it. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah. Yeah. There's, uh, yeah, we could go on and on, but. Um... You know, I think it is time to jump into the film, the live action film, which I know that you and I have been so very eager to. The version that we've been affectionately calling the ScarJo film. The ScarJo film. All right. <laughs> the ScarJo cut. Let's talk about that. Uh, I'll give a quick synopsis of this bad boy before we dig into that whole mess. <laughs> I mean, um, I'm going to yeah. try and say some nice things about it. I know. Let's try yeah. real hard. Uh, okay. So I'm actually going to just read. I found this synopsis online. So I'm mm-hmm. just going to read it word for word here. Okay. So in the future, Major is the first of her kind, a human who is cyber enhanced to be a perfect soldier, devoted, devoted, devoted <laughs> to stopping the world's most dangerous criminals. When terrorism reached a new level that includes the ability to hack into people's minds and control them, Major is uniquely qualified to stop it. As she prepares to face a new enemy, Major discovers that her life was stolen instead of saved. Now, she will stop at nothing to recover her past while punishing those who did this to her. Oh, God. Yep. Yep. (laughs) That's that. Yep. Let's talk about that, Sam. (laughs) All right. So, okay. Let's think. Okay. How do we want to start this? So what did you think about the Major's character? Let's, we're good vibes. We're thinking good vibes here. What did you like about the character Major? Um, she. Besides that she was ScarJo. Uh, (laughs) Which, uh, well, we'll get to that. (laughs) Not my favorite work with ScarJo in it. Yeah. To be clear, I'm okay with ScarJo as an actor, but um, we'll get we'll get there. We'll get there. <laughs> so, I guess if I was going to say something uh, about this version of Major, is um, they kind of took it in a different angle where they are trying to explore the idea of um, her being forced into a cyberized body without her consent. Mm-hmm. Um, they did this kind of in the the OVA Ghost in the Shell Arise, and they actually kind of pay homage to it in the film by having her wear the red suit from that. Yep. Um, True that. And so it's much more of a your body is owned by a corporation, which is a very cyberpunky concept. I actually think uh, I've been ruminating on this, and uh, it reminds me a lot more of like uh, the game Deus Ex. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Which famously, there was a meme around it where he, he said, uh, it's like, I didn't ask for this, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of... Well, it's a very kind of repo man effect where it's like, well, yeah. you can have this body, but if you ever leave this force or this section nine, we repo your body because that is government property and you, you're just hosting this property. Yeah. And they play with that in, 
and Ghost in the Shell Arise as well. And so mm-hmm. Ghost in the Shell Arise was like 2013 to 2015-ish. And uh, so they might have just been pulling from that a little bit more. Yeah. Um, and I think what they bring is just kind of like they, they really play up the body dysmorphia, the not feeling yes. like you're in the right body. Um, yes. And yeah, uh, I think probably I like that the most as a character choice. But mm-hmm. uh, after that, I don't think I have any more nice things to say. Um, I do like Aramaki. We didn't talk about Aramaki in the previous section. He's oh, the, no, the boss didn't. man of, of uh, Section 9. And in- Aramaki, I think that of all of the characters in the live action, I think Aramaki was the best. Yes. He, he looked just like the character from the anime and the manga and everything and he captured the he, feel really well too he did capture like the very zen awesome like chief of yeah. police kind of vibe um yeah. i really liked Atamaki, and they also gave him a very interesting swing where he has a gunslinger moment which yeah. is very much not like the anime or anything but i kind of liked it <laughs> i mean it was good enough that it showed up in the trailer which the trailers for this film were badass I know yeah. the trailer made it look so cool. And I was like squeeing like a little fangirl when that mm-hmm. trailer came out, which by the end of the film, not so much. Yeah. You're like now watching the trailer. I'm like, oh, they, they pulled just the right scenes. To they get. pulled all of the iconic scenes yeah. from the first movie and yeah. then a little extra. So, yeah. Then yeah. the geisha bots, which we didn't mention either in the, the, the previous geisha one, bots, the geisha yeah. bots were really cool. Um, they were done by Weta Workshop, who did Lord of the Rings and Planet oh, of the Apes. Yeah, and... Weta does amazing yeah. stuff. So, yeah. Yeah, the, the, it was interesting about the uh, Geisha bots because, yeah. you know, the, with the, the synopsis that I just said, you know, they, they really highlight that Major is the first of her kind. So the Geisha bots are actually bots. Like you can see mm-hmm. the metal paneling on their faces. And then they have like when they pull the diplomats in that. Uh, geisha house Mm -hmm. they've got these crazy spider legs that all splinter out and and it's a very weirdly organic and mechanical thing all melded into one yep which is a very different vibe yeah and show the geisha bots are from ghost in the shell 2 innocence and also the series standalone complex yeah because there's like that one episode yeah it's the first episode Oh, it is the first episode. Yep. You're right. <laughs> yeah, it's literally the first thing <laughs> the you see is uh, mm-hmm. the geisha bots have been hacked and are holding like a prime minister, not the prime minister, some cabinet secretary guy. Yeah. And uh, and there's more going on. There's more happening. Yeah. So yeah, the okay, geisha well, bots are very done very well, um, but they were kind of an homage to all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I'm, I'm trying so hard not to pull away from this movie because I would much rather talk about it. <laughs> We're chewing on the corners of the bread. What did you um, think about? Well, let's talk about the visual effects because this was a huge aspect of this film. There's a lot of visual effects for obvious reasons. Um, The cityscapes, you know, you can draw whatever you want, but actually creating the cityscapes and the universe that they live in, which is very futuristic, is much harder to do in real life. So they obviously have to enhance. Yeah. What did you think of that? So the, the filming was mostly in New Zealand. So it wasn't really on site, you know, Hong Kong or Tokyo or one of these huge, massive cyber cities. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, I, I watched the animated film like last night 
Nice. And um, <laughs> I, so I was able to compare some of the scenes that they were they were doing one to ones of in the live action. Mm-hmm. And so, like, for example, they have a scene where she wakes up in her apartment and she's sleeping next to her squ- her like rectangular window looking out across the city. That's such a great scene. Yeah. And in the movie, the apartment's just completely dark because all the light is coming from the window and you just see yeah, her silhouette against the window. And then she mm-hmm. gets up, puts something on, opens the door. You see the light from the door and you step out. You don't see her apartment. Mm-hmm. Um, in the live action film, everything's mid-tone gray in the apartment. You see the whole apartment. You spend a lot of time in that apartment. <laughs> Weirdly enough, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and uh, it's not an interesting looking apartment. And I'd say no. the same about the city too is um, there's not – uh, it's kind of flat gray tones, uh, even lighting. And some of the nighttime scenes look really good for the city and things like that. But mm-hmm. yeah, because they, they they also reproduced the boat scene where she's scuba diving. Yes, and that scene was actually quite pretty. Um, because again, it's a night scene, so there's mm-hmm. a lot of lights reflecting off of the water and a lot of like you know uh, stereotypical neon signs and things like that. Um. It is quite pretty. And then they had uh, some interesting uh, CG choices of fancy looking jellyfish. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I think that scene was pretty beautiful. I don't think it was nearly as iconic as the film did, but it was a very pretty scene. I think when we talk about the original animated film and how they had location scouts and they took pictures and things like that, mm-hmm. I'm sure they did that for this film, but I don't feel it as much um there wasn't as much of a melding of old versus new in the city there's all these big holographic signs everywhere and it had a lot more blade runner feel with the big big uh geisha like yeah uh, like led signs and like 3d i mean i really i really wish that the the team behind the newer blade runner uh yeah had been the people designing the city for this one that would have been great yeah so (laughs) In general, it's just uh, the city is not as much of a character as it was in the original film. Mm -hmm. What were your thoughts on the their version of the puppet master? Uh, You mean Kuze? (laughs) Yeah, Kuze. Who I believe is the name that they pulled from a standalone complex. I know we're supposed to just like judge this film on its uh, on its own merits. It's yeah. just very hard because they basically didn't give it its own merits. They kind of copy paste it as much as they could. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> Kuze is kind of a combination of all three major villains from these two properties we're talking about. Mm-hmm. So he's a little bit of the actual character Kuze from the second season of Ghosts in the Shell. He is, um, I think that's right. We might want to check that. But <laughs> um, Don't quote us on this, people. Don't quote we us. Just... <laughs> I haven't watched the second season in a little while. Um, and then there's a, a an entity in the first season called the Laughing Man, who is mm-hmm. like this uh, super class A hacker. And then there's uh, the Puppet Master, which is what they're kind of most directly pulling from. It's like the Laughing Man and the Puppet Master hybrid kind of thing. Yeah, like but then the love interest thing of the second oh. season villain. Yeah. Which I'm not sure if it's a love interest thing or a sibling thing. I don't think I would call it a love interest. I think it's more of a of a uh, strong appreciation for the abilities that he has that she that Motoko kind of pulls towards. Not so much like I'm in love with you. Is it's more like I appreciate what you're able to do, even if I don't fully agree with it. Well, and they have a shared past. That's the right, the right. That's development it. of the film is they are both 
runaways essentially and they get pulled into this corporate program of testing people it's again very i didn't realize until you brought it up but repo genetic opera is uh oh yeah a strong tonal influence on this i feel like or super hardcore or they yeah. are they're very similar in certain aspects which is just the wanton like organ harvesting side of things yep yep um, exactly and they don't they don't lean so heavy into the repo aspect but they definitely are like it's there they're yeah. hanging it over a lot of the the movie it's just like i can take this back at any time because it's my property and i can yeah. do what i want with it and she is just a a hub that yeah. i can you know control so kuze basically is also he's the experiment before her you know he's he's the first iteration but there was like didn't they said there was like 96 or something 98 before her? she's number 98, 98. yeah so. so he was i don't know if he was the first but he was the first quote-unquote successful sentient to or i guess being to stay alive i don't i don't know if he was like the first or one of the first iterations and then there was 98 between him and her i don't okay. remember yeah but he was I, definitely one of the first i wrote down 98 experiments in quote-unquote mira <laughs> <laughs> which i didn't cover in the majors explanation this is not motoko kusanagi right uh. it, except it is <laughs> except it is but it's not yeah Ugh, okay so it's mira no. whatever her last name is <laughs> uh, yeah yeah okay well you know since we're we're, we're just basically pussyfooting around yeah <laughs> <laughs> The, the oh, Sam, it's so painful. Okay, so let's let's just jump into let's compare these bad boys. <laughs> I mean, we didn't even get to uh, like what stands out. What did you like? <laughs> I, I I don't think we're gonna get there. Honestly, <laughs> I I think I said for what did I like? I said the trailers are really cool. <laughs> the, the three minute trailer was good. Yeah, and I think uh, we also covered basically. Uh, my thoughts on this is Ghost in the Shell does not require direct ad adaptation, and they mm -hmm. went that direction more than yes. I would have liked. Uh, it's more that you just got to hit the tone, man. Like, yeah, yeah. And it's, yep. it's really the question of, hey, once everyone has cyborg bodies, what does that do? Right. What does that create? That, like, what universe gets created yeah. out of this ability? And so I think for me, um, I have, okay. I think I have like three things that really just made me want to curl up in a fetal position. Mm -hmm. Okay. So one of the like top, top number one issue I had was the actor choice for Motoko. Yeah. I love Scarlett Johansson. I think she's great and I've loved her in many a movie. However, I cannot understand for the life of me why they decided that a white woman would be good for this role for multiple reasons. Uh, I've got, Multico I've got yeah, some okay. reasons, but they're not good. Ones. I mean, yeah. I mean, I know, I know why they picked her. Yeah. She's, she performs really well in the Chinese market. She performs really well in the American market. She looks really badass and hot in a skin tight suit. She's also <laughs> performs well in the Japanese market and the Japanese, so Asian market yeah. overall. So I understand their choice for it. I highly disagree with it because there are plenty of sexy, awesome, badass Chinese, Japanese, Asian actors that yeah. you could have picked. And also the whole premise of the film is like, oh, well, we we uh, abducted a, a, a Japanese woman 
and stuck her in a white body. So then with that mentality, they literally could have stuck her in any body. So why did it have to be a white chick? Like they don't explain that at all. And then they not only don't explain that, but they dig down deeper because they're like, well, you were a Japanese woman and you meet the mom who's obviously Japanese and your name is Motoko Kusanagi. So it's a very Japanese origin. Right. You stand in front of your grave because you apparently died because they body abducted you. Yeah, they sent ashes, you know. Right. And well, somebody's ashes. Well, it could be legitimately it her body's her body. ashes. Because yeah, they just extracted her. her again, the issue state. of digital authenticity. There's no way to tell. Right. It's literally your dead body. Right, right. So they not only like don't explain why it has to be a white chick, but they like double down saying, oh, well, you were Japanese, but we stuck you in this other body. And they like were rolling with this and it drove me absolutely nuts. And yet again, here we are with an uber whitewashing of such an incredible story. And then not so that's that's my first issue. (laughs) Well, so again, the struggle and I'm not going to try and like white guy mansplain this at all, (laughs) but I might. Um, (laughs) I don't know. Please. I'm just calling it as I see it. And my I'm just a dude on the Internet. But. But um, so this is really an issue of Asian Americans versus, you know, like studios versus the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. So there was lots of examples around the time of this movie coming out that people in Japan are cool with it. White people are just getting upset for no reason on the sake of Asian people. I know. And you're kind of stepping over the Asian American population, especially the Asian American actors. (laughs) I know. I mean, you look at like crazy rich Asians and you look at always be my maybe and like all these, by the way, made more money than this movie. Yeah. Yeah. Cause they were actually good. Yeah. But (laughs) yeah, it's nuts that they're like, Oh, there's just no market for it. Like, of course there is you're just not tapping into it like the other kind of ugly truth of it is uh lots of anime and manga they draw their characters as uh very light skin tones almost caucasian they do look more white however with a name like motoko kusanagi (laughs) i think it's safe to say they are probably japanese and this is like a perfect wedge (laughs) issue because of the whole concept of like well, she could be in anybody, you know. Right, right. Which that drives me even more nuts because if they could be in anybody, then stick her in a freaking Asian body. Like, yeah. I can't. I can't. It just, I hated it so much. And I love ScarJo. Yeah. But, I, I couldn't do it. Yeah. So that's my first big one. Yeah. And <laughs> I mean, it gets even nastier because we talk about, you know, um, basically, oh, it's, you know, it's light skin tones in uh, in manga and anime. And you're like, yeah, but that's because of uh, perceptions of whiteness and fairness being better in Asia. And part of that is European, but part of it is just fucked up feudalism. Yeah, <laughs> so, that's also a very, like, like stereotypes in Asian culture. Yes. Where the darker <laughs> you are, that means that you're not as privileged because you've been out in the fields working and you've gotten tan. So yeah. there's definitely a around darker skinned Asians within the Asian cultures as well. Yes. So that is and that was used, definitely present. That was used during World War II as justification oh, yeah. to take still, over countries. I mean, that's a huge so, issue today where, you know, like in Korea, skin bleaching and yeah. skin whitening is a huge thing. So the whataboutism yeah. <laughs> of, well, they're cool with it. It's like, yeah, but they're cool with it because it's racist. <laughs> like, right. So, right. Yeah. Issue there. Um, yeah. But I... 
you know, either way, not reading into the actual Asian stigma of pale skin versus not. It, this is an American film. This is an American way. film made by American companies. <laughs> right. And American actors with a few Japanese actors. You'll notice that the Japanese actors did not get the lead roles. I know. And also, um, I think it was, uh, who's the guy that is mostly not cybernetic? What's his name? Uh, Togusa. Togusa. Togusa was him and uh, the, oh my God, I'm totally spacing all these names. Uh, the the chief. Aramaki. <laughs> Thank you. Yep. This is why I'm here is pedantic white boy details. (laughs) Those two characters are really the only two Asian characters. Everybody else is white. Yeah. And they also speak in Japanese in the film. Uh, Just uh, Just Aramaki. Aramaki is the only one who speaks Japanese and everybody else can seem to understand him, but can't respond in Japanese well, for some reason. Well, it's the standard Chewbacca situation where everyone yeah. understands the native speaker. Yeah, they, they just got, the, you know, the brain cybernetics that can just decode and yeah. translate all at the same time, yeah. which makes sense. But then it's like, why is everybody not just speaking one language or common, any language? You know, Right, common language. Like, why is he the only one that speaks in Japanese and everybody else seems to be able to speak in English? Like, why? Yeah. <laughs> Well, Star Wars. <laughs> I mean, I guess he's the Chewbacca of the film, which that hurts my heart a little bit. <laughs> I mean, it's I mean, <laughs> kind of the same dynamic. I'm sorry. I know, but like, he's badass and has shoot some guys <laughs> after hitting them with a car. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my god. Yeah. They so, unloads okay. the bullets on their bodies. <laughs> yeah, because he's badass. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So there's that. Yeah. And then an- another. Okay, second issue I have. Yeah. How, how, how do I? Okay. Okay. How do I formulate this? How do we wade into these waters? Waving <laughs> into the void. Okay. It's cold. So, Go slow. I, I, <laughs> so okay. So going back to the synopsis of the film, the the live action film. Yeah. Uh, the whole focal point is she is the first of her kind. Hmm. I, I would have been okay with this had they constructed it a certain way. Mm-hmm. They they make such a big deal about her being the first of her kind. She's unique and no one's ever been able to do this and nobody else has access to this kind of tech. Like they make such a big deal out of that. But it all of that, that agency with the character is lost yeah. because of this decision. And it's it's uh, really just foreshadowing that she isn't the first of her kind. Exactly. So we find out she actually isn't. She's just the best iteration, which is fine. I'm fine with that. That's, you know, that's shady, you know, shady practices of a political sphere. Like, that's fine. Mm-hmm. I get that. But that's, you know, I that's one facet of the story. And then we've got her grappling with not being in her original body and grappling with who she is. And she starts having like memory lapses and then finds out that she's being controlled by this political group because it's actually not political. It's corporate. It's corporate. Right. So yeah, right. Not even political. So they made up a a company, which is okay. Again, ghost of the shell, just get the vibe right, man. Right. But this is again, much more like deus ex and blade runner where it's a company that is doing Mm -hmm. all of this. Yeah. So then, you know, you've got the issue of her like grappling with, I don't feel right in my body. I don't know what is real. She's actually taking drugs to make her. Right. They give her like inhibitors to not have her have like memories. Yeah. But they're telling her it's so like your, your actual physical 
meat brain in your body yeah. doesn't reject your body. Right. And that's a whole nother thing yep, is her brains. brain is all organic. Her <laughs> yeah. meat brain is yeah. all organic where in, you know, the original, she's completely cyber genetic. Yeah. And so that's a whole other thing that I'm like, okay, weird. That's a weird choice. But I guess we're correlating with the brain is still real and everything else isn't. I guess yep. I can get behind that. But it, all that agency of her being powerful and badass and, and fighting, she's fighting about who she is, but in a very different way. She hasn't in bought into the world. Right. Right. And it feels like a lot of the stuff in the live action film, a lot of stuff is happening to her and mm -hmm. she doesn't know how to control it. Whereas in the animated and, and the, an the manga, she has full control over herself and it is completely in her control to decide if she wants to continue being who she is or if she wants to basically disconnect and be something different. Yeah. But she still has that control and she still has full agency of a character yeah. and she can still function. Whereas in the, in the, in the action film that with ScarJo, it's, she seems to be just like manic and doesn't know what she's doing. And she like lashes out and she has, and it just seems like overly and emotional in the wrong way. So, I wrote down um, victimhood. Yes. Yes. So basically exactly. it's uh, the major in the original uh, work is a victim as well of an accident when she was young, kind of unspecified, might have been a car crash or something else. Um, they retool it. That it was, I believe a terrorism attack is what they tell her, but she was actually kidnapped and then put in a cyberized body. Mm -hmm. um, there's themes in the live action film of things like consent like they, she says multiple times in the film, you know, uh, I consent to this. And then yeah. in the climactic scene of them trying to kill her via medical procedure, she's saying, I do not consent. I do not consent, mm -hmm. you know, um, which is, again, it's a, it's a more modern take on it. Um, but one of the things that kind of, um, kind of is dissonant there is the character up until this point is asking permission a lot of times. Yep, um, exactly. No agency. The original major <laughs> was confident and didn't need to ask for approval or permission. Right. And she did all of the things that she does in the show in the in animated film. She she does it and she, she like shoots first, asks questions later, but she doesn't normally get reprimanded because her team trusts her and her and yeah. you know, Automaki trusts her judgment he kind he's of like of scolds her, her. Yeah. yeah he scolds her when she does things that he's like i wouldn't have done that yeah but they all trust her because she knows what she's doing and she is totally in control yeah. one of the things i wrote down is in the first scene where she's doing the iconic ghost in the shell jump off of uh off of building roofs and into things um mm -hmm. <laughs> it's a thing um yep. Totally. I wrote down that they shout stop major into the into the comms, which I'm trying to think of other times that they explicitly tell her not to do something. Yeah. Uh, and I, I just like that I scene when know. they play in other films, it's usually just she does it and they're like, yeah. oh, major's being major, you know? <laughs> yep, exactly. Like there's no question. And they might say like, well, that was dumb. And she's like, yeah, but it worked, right? Yeah. Like <laughs> so I guess like. While I, while I have tried to lay it out, like, you don't need to directly adapt it. Um, they have fundamentally changed how the character engages with the world. 
Absolutely. And it seems like she's just kind of drifting around and doesn't really have any sort of, I don't know, it just, it seems like such a bland character development with, with what you had to work with. In the original film, she was grappling with her identity, but it wasn't this kind of grappling where she's, she in the, in the live action film, she is concerned about like, did something happen to me? You know, did I... Uh, agree to this and Mm -hmm. she in the she has gone and passed that issue in the original film she has accepted that she's a cyborg she's more just going like am i alive you know right right which is a huge existential crisis yeah yeah it's a it's just a very different vibe and i guess it's not that it's i guess it's okay they did that but i'm just i i did i didn't buy it i wasn't sold on this representation of her because I expected more. <laughs> this was a classic Hollywood. Um, the project had been floating around for a while. Apparently Steven Spielberg had bought rights to a live action a long time ago and then it bounced uh, around. Um, this film, I believe, had five to eight writers, depending on how you credit them. Oh, God bless. That makes yeah. so much more sense. One of the guys was <laughs> from the Transformers live action series. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's just like the problem is when you have that many people writing, you get boiled down to very uh simple concepts so it's like there's one corporation that's doing all the bad things and they're clearly evil and Mm -hmm. the major theme of the major is going to be uh that she did not agree to this she did not consent to this this is not her bias the control of a woman's body you know yep um they have we haven't really gone into it but the 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 doctor that is at the corporation oh yeah who helps her yeah yeah she's kind of a maternal figure which is something that has never really been presented with the major that she has a mom you know so she has a real mom yeah it's like she has two moms technically because it's like her 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 maker and then her actual biological mother yeah which is very interesting so concept. Maybe it's shown up in other media of Ghost in the Shell. I haven't seen everything, but I just haven't seen much in the way of, you know, that matronly figure in Major's life. They don't really talk about her family. No. You know? family never really comes up and i feel like of, of anything uh Adamaki might be more of a quote-unquote fatherly figure but yeah. even then i don't i think it's more of a respect thing yeah. as far as him being her superior the boss not man. so much of, yeah, yeah not so much a family thing but like with bato bato i think is the closest thing to a brother that i would recommend for mm. for her character Does to he want to be a brother <laughs> <laughs> that also is <laughs> yeah i think he's more uh, friend zoned than anything maybe I, yeah well i think because i think bateau has a lot of respect for her yes. and definitely has a lot of nurturing respect for her as well because he in the film he's constantly trying to keep her safe and he tries to cover her up when she's naked like he has a lot of respect for her yeah but it is kind of questionable. Is that because he romantically wants to be with her or is it because he sees himself as a protector? Yeah. And just as like a drawing her back into her humanity, the you should care about these things and you, you know, kind of a moral fence post there to kind of latch things onto. I don't know if that terminology is used. very. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and then Batol in, in the live action, his eyes, his eyes god bless okay <laughs> <laughs> all right Let's so this is, another, this is another thing in general about uh the american <laughs> writers of this movie is i feel like they're kind of afraid of the concepts 
Yeah, they didn't lean in too – they either leaned in way too hard on weird things or they didn't lean in enough. Yeah, and <laughs> like, so one of the things they got to do with everyone is explain how they got their augments. Mm-hmm. So, or why they chose to get them. Yeah, like I, I think the, the writers feel like it's a horrible thing to be a cyborg in general. Right, and that's the whole premise of like she's the first of her kind that yeah. nobody else has these cyber enhancements. But it's like, well, no, that's not true. They're actually strongly encouraged. They're, they're treated like kind of traumas, you know, which I'm pretty sure original Bateau joined the army rangers and got that as an upgrade. <laughs> So he could snipe better. And his, well, it's night vision eyes, basically. Uh, right. And right. Again, Bato's eyes have always been white. And then they suddenly <laughs> gave him Kodak camera lenses. <laughs> God bless. Excuse I know. me. <laughs> also, they yeah, were, we're weirdly going, we're small. They're so small yeah. and weird. And it looked like he had. So we were making this joke when we were watching it. He's like from Coraline. He's the other yeah, Bato. Yeah, He's yeah. got the butt eyes. And it was just so. Yeah, so they dedicate some time to this movie to explain why he got these eyes, which was just something that never happened. Bato just walks on the screen. You're like, that guy looks crazy. It's like, welcome to Ghost in the Shell. Yeah, welcome to the universe that everybody's got cyber enhancements and he has cyber eyes. And he's cool with it. He tell he kind of ribs on people being like, you should get better body parts. (laughs) Right. When when I started watching the live action movie, they introduced Bato and I'm like, where are his eyes? That's like the first thing I asked. I'm like, what the hell is this? Where are his eyes? And then they jump in and, you know, he loses his eyes and it's horrific. And then he gets cyber eyes. And I'm like, okay, well, at least they gave him the eyes. But why do they look so dumb? <laughs> like- <laughs> there was probably a cool way you could have done that. I'm not oh, saying that totally. it's a hard no, but totally. again, it just screams to me that this right that this group of writers um, – weren't familiar with the material and kind of took a stance that uh, cybernetics is only a last resort sort of thing. Right. And that's, again, we keep going back to the whole Major's the only one of her kind. So anybody else who has cyber enhancements is either a last resort or it's janky hybrid stuff. Cause you know, we go yeah. to like the, the club scenes where these mobsters are and a lot of their tech that they have looks very like, underground black market kind of stuff where it doesn't look streamlined well and that's the code them as evil yeah exactly they look sketchy they look like so therefore demons bad. like yeah yeah exactly and it's and it's interesting too because you kind of look at the geishas that they created in the live action where you can see the metal paneling yeah there's similar things that you can see on the cyborg people where they've got paneling on their jaw so it looks like a there might be some sort of hinge or something there so it it is organic to a certain extent, like there's mm. organic covering, but you can't hide yeah. the joints. Whereas with Motoko, she is completely human looking. So they obviously perfected the camouflage. Until she takes off her jacket and you get the, the Barbie doll look. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then she's got, you know, the neck Where's ports. the nipple cut? <laughs> <laughs> no nipples. We can't yeah. have that. No, PG-13. I know. Also, American market, we're prudes. Yeah. Uh, it's, yeah, there's just so many things that you're you're absolutely right, Sam, that it doesn't have to be a perfect recreation. You just have to get the vibe. And they they were so close to some things, but then they just like went off the rails and it's like, okay, I don't know why you had to go there. And then also they couldn't keep, they couldn't pick a plot. They had so many different things going on 
I mean, that is kind of Ghost in the Shell. <laughs> they yeah, they do yeah, meander they, sometimes. I'm not going to meander, but not within episodes. Yeah. Like normally, it's isolated. So you're like, okay, today we're talking about this. Kind of gets distracted for a little while. They're like, oh yeah, 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 yeah. The oh, yeah, fucking hacker thing. Okay, yeah, yeah, exactly. And they can't keep it straight. And you know, we watched this with a friend who hadn't seen any of the original content, and we asked her like what did you think of this not having any background and nothing to compare it to? And she's like, well, you know, it was interesting. I don't think I disliked it as much as you guys, but it didn't make sense. There was no cohesion in, in picking a plot or picking a, a theme or whatever you want to call it. They just bounced around on so many different things that had they actually taken the time to focus on one theme throughout the whole movie, it could have been a really badass film. Yeah. But they just, they were so like ADHD with their, their styles. Well, and maybe it's because they had eight writers. I yes. don't know. Like it, it was a lot of bouncing around and just did not jive well on top of them really missing the mark on a lot of beautiful ghost in the shell things. And this kind of occurs with most uh, animated live action adaptations. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you've watched any of the prominent anime live action. Oh, like Death Note, Death and Note Bleach, uh, Full and Metal like, Alchemist, Bleach. Yeah, Attack on Titan. Yeah. yeah. I watched yeah. the Bleach one. And <laughs> so this is very reminiscent to me of the Bleach oh, adaptation Bleach. where essentially yeah. uh, this is kind of a Japan thing where they just are cool with having like a two hour movie that basically summarizes a whole animated series. So it does jump around from like yeah. set piece to set piece of the show. Right. Right, because you're condensing hundreds of hours of content into an hour and a half or two hours. And they're just cool with that. And that's probably (laughs) just a foreign thing to an American audience. Yeah, it is pretty different, though. Yeah. And the thing is, though, those were Japanese produced films or Chinese produced films. This is an American produced film. Yes. Which is another issue. Not because I don't think that white people can't make an Asian persuasion film. Well, we did. It's called The Matrix. <laughs> it's called The Matrix, yeah. And it's like our our cultural representation or interpretation, I guess, of this would be very different mm-hmm. than a Japanese interpretation because you can just – you that's literally what we're talking about is like the original is Japanese production and you can see very strong currents of Japanese culture and persuasion. And then you look at the Americanized version of that and it's – completely different and the whole focus on the american side is i want to be individual i want to be me i want to you know have a purpose i want to have a say self-awareness on my own without any control which is a very american concept yeah my my quick taglines that i wrote basically is uh the comparison i can come up with is like enlightenment versus identity and trauma yes Exactly. And then struggling upstream against the system versus corporate intrusion in your life and themes of consent. Exactly. (laughs) And then we covered active participant versus victim. Yep. Which again, when you have these side-by-side comparisons that you just pointed out, one is a very strong Asian perspective and one is a very strong American perspective. Like Asian community is not very big on the individual. They are very, very honed in on the collection of community and the unit. They, yeah. they don't think individualism as a quote unquote, not a good thing or a bad thing, but it's important to think of your family. It's important to think of the company. It's important to think of your country. 
their relationship with like corporate interests is they don't necessarily view them as bad or good. They just view them as part of life. But Ghost in the Shell is generally, you know, you end up fighting the government. <laughs> You're part right. of the government, but you fight the other part of the government because we're all thugs that are from the previous war, you know. Right. So. Right. Yeah. I Did they mention the Third World War in the live action film? I don't. Because that would be like well, a mind-blowing thing for American audiences, like Third World War. And I think Standalone Complex has a Fourth World War. <laughs> right. I think if they did mention it in the live action, I don't think, one, they didn't really highlight on it strongly, but they do kind of allude to when Motoko was actually still Motoko. Mm-hmm. She was living like almost in like a DMZ. Yeah. Kind of a Kowloon neighborhood. Yeah, something like that. So I guess that could sort of imply that maybe there was something that happened in that area that was warlike. Yeah. Um, because it did seem like that area that they were in was completely torn down due to some sort of battle or yeah. war or something. Well, but they don't ever talk about it. Yeah. it just It's just there. Oh, well, um, another one-to-one scene that they kind of uh, – compresses the uh, garbage man scene yes i thought that was interesting i i think they did a a sort of good job with that i i don't mind so much that they compiled a couple different characters into one what what are your thoughts on that let's hear your thoughts first well so we when we were watching that movie together we were kind of bothered that he was a zombie yes (laughs) and that's again that's coding that you know oh he's hacked and it's like the whole point of the idea of ghost hacking is you don't know you're hacked like (laughs) yeah yeah it did seem like a very like i'm taking over your body and you have no control which again it goes back to the whole consent thing it's a domination yeah exactly which i don't think that it's not that that was happening in the animated film but the way that they executed it was so much more subtle. It's inception versus domination. Exactly. Like he didn't realize that everything that he was doing was being dictated by someone externally and he believed it to be reality, which I think is much more powerful because you can't tell the difference between reality and cyber hacking. He replaced his memory with a memory that he has a ex-wife and a kid and that he needs to do these crimes to pay for his alimony and things like that. Right. You know, so it's giving him a reason to do crime. And uh, and then it's revealed that he doesn't have a wife and a kid. He lives in a schlub apartment and his memory has been permanently altered. <laughs> right. And the photo that he has where he's trying to show his coworker of him and his daughter, he's visually seeing it as him and his daughter. But then when they go back to it, when he's in the interrogation room, it's him and a basset hound. Yep. So it's the, not only is it implanted memories, but it's also like visually um, hacking into his like cornea so that he's seeing something that isn't even there without mm-hmm. even realizing it, which I think is so spooky. Yeah, there's actually <laughs> way a, more ominous. <laughs> there's actually a quote from the original author of Ghost in the Shell about the nature of computers and technology. And essentially mm-hmm. he, he was making the point that as people... Uh, as computers and things like this get more complicated, less and less people in the world know how they actually work. And so effectively you treat your computer like a box of magic, you know, like you just kind of accept that if I type on this keyboard, letters show up and you don't know how that happens. Right. If something breaks, you don't know how to fix it. You just know that it should be doing something. And if it doesn't, there's, you have to go fix it. So these higher tier hackers basically look like Matt, they look like wizards. They look like Mm -hmm. magicians, you know? Yeah. Yeah. 
Whereas, you know, in the live action film, it it is almost like a kind of uh, hijacking a person's body and basically remote controlling them yeah. in a very aggressive way. Well, and it's it's just, again, I think to be very obvious to uh, that man is hacked, you know? Yep. Yeah, he's not acting normal. He's compromised, exactly. And it, you know, it still gets the job done to explain, oh, this is brain hacking, but it had such an aggressive stance on it where it's like he's literally completely out of character. He's not only out of character, but actively like it trying to kill people. It it just it really drove into the whole like this is a terrorist act. Yeah. Which Well, yeah, yeah. Again, the uh, I also quoted hard use of the word terrorist. Oh, big time. <laughs> which, which, you know, Americans are really big on. <laughs> terrorist has been used in previous uh, Ghost in the Shell iterations, but uh, they, yes. they hit it a little harder on the American version. Oh, God, so much harder. And yeah. obviously, that's a, this is a, a visual way for them to hit that harder is yeah. that, you know, not only is this person getting mentally hacked, but it's a very aggressive stance on what that would look from the other side. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, other than that, I think uh, another scene that I wanted to highlight that was actually good from the Scar- ScarJo version is the hacking. When she finally dives into the memories of someone and there's there's a trap and it's like the bodies are grabbing her and trying to pull her into it. That was an interesting concept. I did like that. Yeah. Well, and then also, you know, that mind that she's hacking in is slowly breaking down. Yeah. And so when they have her in the memory of the geisha house, everything looks pixelated and is slowly starting to crumble and dissolve. I thought that that was a visually very cool thing that they don't really touch on in the show. And I did, I agree. I did like that representation. And then obviously when she gets hacked and she's, you know, in a pool of just black arms and Mm -hmm. it's a creepy image, but it's a very cool concept it made me think of that uh, game of thrones scene with uh amelia clark in the middle of all the people <laughs> oh god <laughs> <laughs> again another, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah a little bit a little bit yeah. but yeah there there were some really cool visuals yeah. and obviously you know the fight sequences were pretty coolly choreographed and they had they did pull some really like iconic scenes from the film like the water fight and yeah. her you know diving off the building being in the camouflage and the geisha house like there were a lot of scenes that were beautiful and it is cool to see that in a live at action adaptation mm-hmm. but it wasn't nearly enough to salvage the actual story of the movie you know <laughs> like, kind of a, a a filming choice and a way that the scenes are structured is um in the original film they don't really like present who's in the tank in the tank fight there is a pilot right. you see him like dead afterwards two people in there but yeah it's not yeah. important <laughs> you know and in the film they literally show like the ceo uh, the live I action know, film they show the, the ceo remote controlling the tank i know <laughs> like, i know they have to Which cut back like- to this guy and it's like no like uh so it <sighs> just leaves to less experiential of like okay, this is what the major is feeling. This is, they're not living in the scene longer. It's just kind of how Hollywood cuts movies versus how, um, you know, like an animated film from Japan would cut a a film Mm -hmm. Um, is how long do you keep the focus on things, stuff like that. It all really contributes to the tone. Absolutely. And that, especially with that end scene, which again, pulling from the first film of the end scene where she has to fight the, the, the big gun tank and, she has to try and, you know, rip open the tank. And and I think that 
makes more sense contextually from the show mm-hmm. because she already has multiple conversations about how it's just a body and it's just a tool that I use. So who cares if I rip my arms off because that's what she does to try to get into the tank in the film. Also, they state that she's outgunned and that she's right. doesn't have enough time basically. They tell her to wait, but then she goes in. Right. And so they, you know, she has this kind of devil may care attitude with her body because it is just a tool and it makes more sense and it has more weight in the animated film. I feel than yeah. the live action just because I, I don't, because I feel like th- with the whole, like she's the only one of her kind and this body is an, is a miracle to science. Yeah. And then, you know, and then she goes and tries to just destroy it. And it's like, it's a very, I, I don't know. I don't, I, I didn't resonate with it. The same. You could have explored that idea more that right. she is rebelling against this idea of being unique, you know? Right. But- right. And, and I, I wonder if maybe their interpretation was like, well, She's finally thinking of like, I need to do this to save this, you know, this person. And it's my choice. Like that scene in the live action film, she succeeds in opening the hatch by sacrificing her arms. No, she doesn't. She doesn't? No. Oh. That was one thing I actually was glad that she she didn't succeed. Uh, I but misremembered she didn't re- that false memories I've been <laughs> She didn't open it, which was like, I was like, well, at least they got that part right. But she also didn't lose both her arms she loses one of them the other's like hanging on by a thread and she walks away yeah at the end with bateau in that live action whereas in the other one she's literally just a a mangled torso and she still has her clothes on which i think is really in poor taste (laughs) (laughs) what's the point of that guys what's the point (laughs) yeah it's yeah no It's it's really um, I mean, I hate that we have to go through with a fine tooth comb because basically they, they're paying homage or recreating scenes from the other films. Yeah. And that shouldn't be the point. Just the same as it shouldn't be the point that she's a white woman body in this world. That's yep. totally possible. But yep. it doesn't get the vibe right. No. And I think they I think they were trying too hard to pull. You know, they were trying to how can we make a iconic very niche market turn into a more broad market. So they were trying to pull in the people who are already fans by using those iconic shots. And then they were trying to pull everybody else in who had no idea what it was by making it broad. And so by having like really, really isolated and then really, really broad scattered throughout the movie, it's just, it was just like this haphazardly put together film. And it's it's unfortunate. You think they're deliberately shooting for a sequel? I God, I hope not. <laughs> I mean, probably. I, I mean, I, don't, I think it's dead in the water at this point because it didn't make money. But I hope so. Yeah. I don't want them to do that. And if they do, I want it to be the Wachowskis. Otherwise, I will flip a table. Yeah, because <laughs> ScarJo Scar mentioned that it was an honor to be part of the franchise and things like that. So Franchise? Yeah. Oh, bless. Well, maybe hopefully they're referring to the fact that Ghost in the Shell has been a franchise before this Film. Yes. Maybe that's what she was referring to. I'm I, hoping. I'm hoping. I don't know. Maybe they were telling her 10 million. She got paid 10 million for this movie. Maybe God she was going bless. to get progressive pay for each one of them. The movie apparently only cost 40 million to make. So she was a, only 40 million. Well, that was a huge <laughs> chunk of the budget. I, well, don't even get me started on how budgets work for films. Yeah. <laughs> don't even get me started. Yeah. Uh, okay. Well, let's, let's wrap it up here. I think we could continue to just 
throw down on the the hot trash can on fire that was the film, but we'll we'll give it a rest. Yeah. Any final thoughts for you, sir, on on the film versus the show? Um, there's much better cyberpunk works than Ghost in the Shell 2017. Uh, yeah. you could watch the more recent Easily. Blade Runner. I'm not as big on Blade Runner, but it, they work in the same ways. They're noir. They're mm-hmm. about uh, on the surface technology and robots and companies and cyberpunk. But really, they're talking about what it means to be a person, individuality, freedom, things like that. Uh, they work in the same Altered circles. Carbon is yeah, another Altered really Carbon good one. is another great one. Yeah. Uh, I started this by talking about Isaac Asimov. His short stories are great. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, the series of games, Deus Ex. Uh, man, yep. I played Mankind Divided and got some vibes of this. Um, there's the cyberpunk video games and tabletop RPG that are also very, uh, very good. So there's many ways you can get your cyberpunk and this is just not a very strong, uh, showing of cyberpunk. No, No, definitely. I agree. Oh, well, Sam, you are the best. Thank you for walking us through that. It was glorious. I'm so happy that you could join me today. Yeah. Uh, it's been a oh, it's been a wild ride. This yeah. this whole thing. Uh, before we leave, did you want to highlight anything that you're currently reading or doing right now? What, what are you What are you doing? Well, so uh, I'm a big Godzilla fan, and we haven't figured out a way to get me on the show and talk about Godzilla. <laughs> oh, we'll get there. <laughs> so <laughs> don't you worry. <laughs> I don't know if you're an evergreen show or not, but Godzilla versus Kong just came out, so I'm over the it- moon. Did um, on HBO. Yeah, my reviews yeah. of Godzilla are not going to be valid because I'm pretty sure Godzilla could commit a triple murder and I'd still show up. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so I I paid for HBO Max and uh, I'll have it for a month. So I'm currently binging everything on HBO Max. I love it. So, also, I'm not sponsored by HBO Max. Yeah. We are literally just talking about so, it. So <laughs> uh, there's actually the excellent uh, Harley Quinn animated show on oh, there. Yeah. It's, it's kind of a mixture of uh, Venture Brothers, which is a good animated show. And then like uh, the Bruce Tim Batman animated series from the 90s. And then nice. uh, I also noticed they have a lot of um, a lot of Japanese films that are like older Japanese films. They have all uh, the Showa era Godzilla films, yeah. but they also have um, things like uh, Seven Samurai and Throne of yeah, Blood. I know. And I've never it's seen really... Throne of Blood, so I'm <gasps> probably going. Oh, it's so yeah, good. Throne of Blood, for anyone that doesn't know, is a Japanese interpretation of Shakespeare's Macbeth. Yep. So it's pretty darn great, guys. Yeah. I highly recommend that if you're super into old school Japanese film. Yeah. And also crazy adaptations of European works into, uh, into Asian, Asian cultures. Market. Yeah. Yep. It's such a wild ride. Yeah. And it's and Seven Samurai is oh, yep. so good, too. I know some really good stuff right now. And they have a ton of um, like all the Studio yep. Ghibli stuff is on there right yep. now. I mean, there's a ton of really good. If you're getting your Japanese fix in, yep. there's a ton of stuff. Yeah. And then... Uh, most of my life is dominated right now by uh, I'm I play a lot of tabletop RPGs and nice. my system of choice is a Starfinder, which is a futuristic fantasy versus your standard medieval fantasy. And so you can totally be a crazy cyborg and you know I was know, gonna say there's your your mech yeah. <laughs> insert here mech stuff. Yeah, I mean in general, <laughs> I if you want Sam to like an anime, put some trauma traumatized teenagers in a death machine, I'm pretty happy. So <laughs> So anything that came out of the 90s. Yeah, Evangelion, Gundam. uh, (laughs) I really like uh, uh, Eureka 7. Yep, um, yep. And uh, Code Geass, you know. (laughs) Oh, God, yeah. Yeah. 
Awesome. Well, Sam, thank you so much for being on the show with me today. This was wonderful. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you to all of my listeners. I'm so happy you joined us and we will see you next time. Bye. We don't see them. It's a podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Well, fine, Sam. You know what? (laughs) We'll shout at you next time. (laughs) Tell you what movies are good and bad.